Please uh, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, looking at verses 19 through 23 this morning, the law of the firstborn. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, which we said at the beginning, I believe was one of Jesus's favorite books of the Bible. If we base it surely on uh, the number of times he referenced this book, this was a uh, a book that Jesus turned to routinely throughout his uh, earthly ministry. It's a book which he ate. He ate as his daily bread, and we want to eat it too and be shaped and formed by God's word and see how this uh, book bears witness to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope we'll see that today as we think about the law of the firstborn. So let's give our attention to The reading of God's word, Deuteronomy 15, verses 19 through 23. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood you shall pour it out on the ground like water. Well, I wonder where you fall, uh, where you line up in the birth order of your family, regardless of whether you're the oldest or the youngest or somewhere in between or an only child. Chances are you have uh, experienced some of the stereotypes uh, of... Um, being an older, younger, middle, or only child. You know, the, the oldest are often expected to be the responsible ones, right? The, those uh, cut out for leadership, the strong-willed children, and middle children are often seen as uh, those who are peacemakers. Uh, sometimes they live in the shadow of their older sibling, and for that reason... Psychologists suggest that middle children are more prone to rebel. (laughs) Uh, Younger children are often the really social ones, and sometimes they're a bit pampered and spoiled by their parents and older siblings. In our increasingly therapeutic culture, the way that we think about birth order tends to be highly psychologized along those lines. In other words, we think primarily about our lineup in our family in terms of personality traits and developmental issues. In the ancient world, things were different. Uh, The attention lay elsewhere. In the past, the main significance of birth order, it it had more to do with with status. To be the firstborn was to be in a position of privilege and, in some cases, power and preeminence. 
We think of many examples of this seen in the ancient world reflected in the Old Testament. Just one example, Genesis 49 illustrates this way of thinking where at the end of uh, the book of Genesis, Jacob is blessing his sons and he comes to Reuben and he says, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength. Firstborn, preeminent in power. Now, of course, it's, it's worth noting that we have plenty of examples of uh, the subversion of this expectation, the overturning of this expectation for the firstborn throughout Scripture. For example, Jacob and Esau, or, or Joseph with his brothers, or David when he was anointed to be king. You remember, he, he wasn't the oldest. He was, in fact, the youngest of eight brothers. But he was given the place of the firstborn and anointed king over Israel, even though he was the youngest. And so we see some, some overturning of this expectation. Jesus himself famously declared, not, not to, in direct relation to birth order, but by extension, we could say, the last shall be first. And the first shall be last. Nevertheless, when we encounter the language of the firstborn in Scripture, I think it's very important for us to understand its primary significance. It is always intended to communicate, to convey uh, a privileged position of preeminence. Perhaps the single best example of this in the Old Testament, Psalm 89, verse 27, which says about the Lord's anointed, uh, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So to be the firstborn is, is related to royalty and exaltation and preeminence in Scripture. And grasping the significance of this privileged position, I think, is key to understanding the law here in Deuteronomy 15 regarding the sacrifice of the firstborn. When the Lord sent Moses, consider this as background to all of this. When the Lord sent Moses to Israel, he commanded Moses to say something to Pharaoh, to declare to him that Israel had a special status in relation to God. And I bet you can guess what that is now. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And we need to understand that this is the story that grounds the statute in our passage. It's the drama of redemption that determines the demand requiring all firstborn men in Exodus and beasts to be dedicated to the Lord. And the idea here. Uh, is that the firstborn is not only in a privileged position, but is uniquely prized, a 
treasured possession that belongs to God. And simply put, Israel was God's firstborn son, his treasured possession among the nations. And because the Lord had spared the firstborn sons of Israel in the Passover, you remember by causing the the angel of death to pass by the homes with the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts, the Lord therefore claimed all of the firstborn within Israel to be dedicated to him. And so as we'll see, this law of the firstborn, it not only teaches us something we ought to do, (coughs) it also reveals something that God himself has done. Something that he has done for us. The law of the firstborn, it not only teaches us to give God the first and the finest, the, the beginning and the best of all that we have, it also declares the astonishing good news that God has given us his first and finest in Christ, who is the firstborn over all creation. And so I want to explore this passage in those two parts. First, the law of the firstborn, and secondly, the good news of the firstborn. One of the One of the challenges that we face in trying to understand this law is that we no longer live in an agrarian society like like the Israelites did. Most of us, I'm sure, we, we still eat meat, but there are very few of us who are intimately involved, directly involved in the visceral process of birthing and raising and slaughtering animals for food. Very few people have hands-on experience and knowledge of what used to be a very common aspect of human life. Due to the industrialization of of farming, most people know very little about the, the conditions of the birth and the rearing and the slaughter of 33 million cattle, 125 million pigs, and 9 billion chickens processed in the United States annually. And just as an aside, the the living conditions and the treatment from an ethical standpoint, this is probably an issue that deserves far more attention than it often gets. But we rarely have contact with the animals that we eat until Uh, it's neatly packaged and we purchase it in a local grocery store. And I think if we're not careful to remember, we can easily forget where our food comes from. Actually, something has to die in order for us to live. I'll never forget when I uh, visited the Philippines and spent some time there a number of years ago, one of the things we did while we were there, we went to a a small village called Sanasa, which is located near Davao City in the southern Philippines. And uh, these are folks who lived uh, in what was basically deforested jungle area, and they got by as uh, subsistence farmers, raising their own crops and living off of whatever they could grow on really steep slopes. 
They didn't have much, but because they didn't have much, they didn't take what they had for granted. And uh, at the end of our time with them, uh, we, were, we were sent to, uh, we worked with a missions agency that uh, made first contact with groups by doing mercy ministry works. And the thing they were doing in this village was building a water well system so people in the village had access to clean running water. At the end of the week, the folks wanted to express their gratitude. And I noticed throughout the week, they had a flock of chickens just roaming around the village. And the last day there, uh, one of them took me aside. I watched him grab some of these chickens. And I'm going to spare you some of the details. But slaughter the chicken, pluck the chicken, prepare the chicken, and then give it to us to eat that night. And I, I knew exactly which chicken I was eating. But many of us just haven't had that kind of visceral experience. Very few people have that kind of experience today. Most of us have probably had, I don't know, chicken or beef in the last week. But when was the last time that you personally witnessed the birth of a calf? You raised it up, took care of it, went on to slaughter it in order to serve it to your family. That that kind of thing will have an impact on you. it will, and, and it should, if we understand the sanctity of the life of all of God's creatures. And the law of the firstborn, you see, it was meant to produce a way of life that constantly, take a look at what does the text say, year after year, it was meant to produce a way of life that reminded God's people of where life comes from. Every time one of their animals gave birth for the first time, they were called to remember (coughs) and to rejoice in the fundamental reality of the provision and the generosity of God. And they did this by dedicating the firstborn animal to him. It's something we so easily take for granted because everything is so far removed from us today. But this law was instituted to remind the people where their food came from and it was meant to produce a habitual form of life that was filled with grateful wonder. As Daniel Block, one of the most helpful commentaries I've been using on Deuteronomy, he says about this passage, <coughs> every birth of a firstborn male among cattle, sheep, or goats signaled a call from Yahweh to the household, to come to his sanctuary, to declare their gratitude and fellowship with him. The fertility of the flocks and the herds was not to be taken for granted. The ability of a cow to conceive and give birth was a gift and a mark of divine blessing. And another thing I think we need to appreciate is the way that the generosity of God just jumps off of the page in this passage. And we notice that this when we, we note that although God required the Israelites to give him their first and their finest, right, their best, that might seem kind of kind of demanding. You know, you're going to take the firstborn, you're going to take the very first, might seem kind of extractive, but the generosity of God leaps off of the page when we see what he tells the people to do with it. When, he's, when we note what he tells the people to do with the first 
and the finest. What does God tell them to do? He says, come to the place where I dwell and have a feast in my presence. He, he says, eat it. Eat it with me. The people are, are commanded to do this. And they become the recipients. Isn't that an amazing thing to notice? God commands it. Now what do they eat? <coughs> the beginning and the best for a household feast in the presence of God. Reminding the people of the provision and the overflowing generosity of God. I think we need to understand this principle for our entire lives, brothers and sisters. Even when God's commandments seem to take something away from us. God's intent is our good. God's intent is to bless us. Every prohibition points to an even greater provision. Everything. Everything it seems like God may be removing when, when we understand it in the fullness of his provision and his will and purpose for our lives points us to an even greater generosity. His commandments do not impoverish us. See, here we discover the fact that giving God our best is not burdensome. And in fact, God is so generous that whenever we give to God, we end up on the receiving end. That's what this passage shows us. At the same time, however, the, the law of the firstborn does contain, I think, a profound challenge. Now, everything we've just said is, is true, but there is a challenge here that prompts us to ask ourselves a question. Are we? Are we giving God our first and our best? Are we, are we really? Are we bringing him the first and the finest of all that he has freely given to us? Or are our gifts, is our service to God, is our worship nothing more than an exercise in tokenism? Are we, gonna, are we giving God to, you know, leftovers, if we can put it that way? Now, of course, we, we don't offer animal sacrifices to God under the new covenant. But this principle, right, what older Christians called the general equity of this law, does apply to us. So, so what about you? you know, what about your commitment to God? What about your worship? What about your service to the saints? What about your time, your relationships, your energy and efforts? What about your focus and your will and your desires and your relationships? What are you about? Are you giving God your first and your best? The book of Malachi, I think, is a good place to go in scripture to reflect upon this question. The book of Malachi begins with God saying to his disobedient and lukewarm people, I have loved you. And he said, I have loved you as a father loves his own son. He says, and a son, a son is supposed to honor his father. And, and, and the Lord says, where's my honor? You, you haven't honored me. You've despised me. And the people say, how have we despised you? 
And the Lord says, by offering me blind and lame sacrifices. The very thing forbidden here in Deuteronomy 15. In Malachi 1 verse 8, the Lord says, go on, go on, present present your offering to your governor. Will he accept it? See what he's saying? you, You wouldn't take this spoiled gift and offer it to some other authority in your life, some other person that you bow down to and serve, but, but you, bring it, you bring it to the Lord of hosts whose name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. And I think a question that we need to ask ourselves when we read Malachi 1 is, do we ever do that? Are we ever like the people in Malachi's day, giving him our second best, giving him our leftovers? You know, when when a people's heart is like that, God does not mince words with his people. He, He says to the people in Malachi's day, shut the door, put out the fire on the altar. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Translated, Your worship stinks. We need to take this seriously, I think. Do do we give God our first and finest? Or are we in reality satisfied with tokenism? You know, going through the motions, just checking the boxes, praising God with our lips while our hearts are far from Him. Friends, the Bible is absolutely clear that Only a perfect and spotless sacrifice is acceptable and pleasing to God. Nothing else will do. Nothing else is received. Nothing but spotless perfection. Sinless, spotless perfection. Moses insists on this in Deuteronomy 15 verse 21. says, if... If it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So are you you feeling the weight of this? I hope hope you are feeling it the way that I'm feeling it. Do you you see the problem? This is a gigantic pickle. This is is a hard place. What are we going to do if God demands our first and our finest and yet our very best is so deeply flawed. Right? If every aspect of our lives is blemished and marked by imperfection, what are we supposed to do when we're called to give God our best and it has to be perfect to be acceptable in his sight? What are we going to do? Do you have anything like that? I know I don't. We're called to offer him the sacrifice the praise of our lips, but like Isaiah, we ought to readily say that we are a people of unclean lips. We're, we're to serve the Lord with a pure and undivided heart, and yet our hearts are often so impure and divided, serving this, that, and the other thing. So we're called to give God everything. But we have to recognize that everything we've got is seriously blemished. And and so given given this reality, given the reality of how far short we fall, 
the question at least arises, should we even bother? Should we just give up? Should we even try serving God when his demand is flawless perfection? Hear me clearly, the answer to that question is a resounding no. (laughs) We should not give up. And that takes us to the good news of the firstborn. You see, the offering of the firstborn, it does not only appear in Scripture as a demand. It also appears in Scripture as a gift. We not only have the demand for the firstborn, we also have a gift within the good news of the gospel. Hebrews unpacks this for us. Uh, uh, It's a bit complicated because it's a theme that actually runs throughout the book. So if you have a bulletin, just turn back to the call to worship. That's why we used this passage. I want you to take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. I'm going to point us to some other parts in Hebrews, but let's first look here, because Hebrews helps us understand how our gifts are made acceptable to God. Not just ourselves, But our gifts are made acceptable and pleasing in his sight. Have a look at Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 again. For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given at Mount Sinai, right? If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that even Moses, even Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, see the contrast here, you, you have come to Mount Zion. You've come to a different mountain. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And as Pastor Dave pointed out in his reading, and to the assembly, that is, To the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now there is a lot going on in those verses, but there's just one thing I want you to notice, and it's that the author of Hebrews says that believers have come to the church of the firstborn in verse 23. What does that mean? What does it mean that when we come together to worship God, that we come to the church of the firstborn? It means, brothers and sisters, that through Jesus, through him, we are as acceptable, as perfect and spotless as firstborn sons of God. That's what it means. When we come to the heavenly Jerusalem, we come to the church of the firstborn. And that means that through Jesus, we are well-pleasing to the Father. It means that through Him, you can continually offer up the sacrifice of praise and serve one another and give what you, what, uh, you can share what you've been given, knowing that such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's Hebrews 13 verses 15 
and 16. Now, after everything we've just discussed about the requirement for perfection, you have got to think about this, that you, you and I, can come to God and stand in his presence and continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, right? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And we do that here, don't we? When we, when we sing together and when we serve and share with one another, it is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God, Hebrews says, through him, through Jesus. It's something that you give to God through Jesus that is acceptable and pleasing in his sight. And this, this ought to floor us. The letter of the Hebrews was written to Jewish believers you know, who were being tempted to go back to you know, the old forms, the old manner of worship under the old covenant through the ceremonial laws and its sacrificial system. But the author of Hebrews applies the title firstborn in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 to Jesus in order to communicate his preeminence and his superiority over everything that we might seek to compare him to or replace him with. Jesus' superiority is so great that it simply cannot be overstated. He is exalted over all. Hebrews 1 verse 8 says, Of the firstborn, who is the Son of God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's talking about Jesus. Remember Psalm 89, I quoted earlier, the, the firstborn is the highest king of all. The Lord's anointed is preeminent in everything, exalted over all peoples. And yet, here's the marvel of the gospel according to Hebrews chapter 1. This firstborn Son of God, preeminent over all, we are told that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That is the voice of Christ we are hearing. Quoted in Psalm 22, who perfects all of the gifts and sacrifices of the people of God and makes them acceptable to God. He stands in the midst of the assembly, in the midst of the church, which Hebrews 12.23 calls the assembly of the firstborn. You see, beloved, because he is not ashamed to call us brothers... Not only we ourselves, but our gifts, our service, our worship, our sacrifice of praise is pleasing and acceptable to God through him. See, in Christ we are acceptable and then also what we give, even imperfectly, even though it's deeply flawed. Isn't, isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? After all, There is nothing that we offer in this life that is not deeply, seriously blemished. 
But at the same time, through him, it is acceptable and well-pleasing to God. And that is because God has provided in the gospel what he demands. God has provided what he requires. You see, the law of the firstborn ultimately leads us to the good news of the firstborn. That God himself has given us his first and finest in Jesus to be a perfect sacrifice so that we might be eh, without spot or blemish or wrinkle. You know, you, you look at yourself. What do you see? Blemishes, right? Sin, impurity. You get cleaned up, right? You get washed, get sprinkled by the blood. And what do we do? We go out and dirty ourselves again. More blemishes, more, more spots. But through him, listen, listen to what Hebrews is telling us. Through him, what does God see? Spotless perfection. Without blemish. Because you've been washed, you are holy and pleasing in God's sight as a member of the assembly of the firstborn. And we need to ask ourselves the question, what should such amazing grace produce in us? How, how are we going to respond to this? Does, does it make us want to say, okay, well and good, I'm going I'm to go on sinning because Jesus has got this. You know, what's Paul's response to that kind of meganoita, right? May it never be. God forbid. It, no, it makes us want to say, take my life and let it be consecrated to you. Take, take everything. I lay it at your feet. It is all yours. As Paul says in Romans, by the mercies of God, I offer myself as a living sacrifice. And Hebrews tells us that through Jesus, it is acceptable and it is pleasing to your heavenly Father. So, so beloved, this is what I want us to appreciate from the law of the firstborn this morning. You, by faith, belong to the church of the firstborn. And that means that through Jesus, not only you, but your gifts and your service is pleasing and acceptable in the sight of your Father. And that ought to encourage us to live out and out for God our Father with our lips and with our lives to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in, in Deuteronomy, which profoundly challenges us in many ways and at the same time offers us the deepest assurance. We, uh, we thank you that you have provided the apple of your eye, the one who is chief, fair, uh, and lovely among 10,000. And you did not spare him, but you delivered him up for us all in order that we might be washed and cleansed and brought nigh to you. And so let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise your great name. And we pray that as uh, we hear your word this morning, that your spirit would move us to more fully give ourselves uh, to you.
in joyful service. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.